0: Turn with me to 2 Samuel, chapter 3. Now, we already dealt in part with verses uh, 6 through 16 last week, but I'm going to read 6 through the end of the chapter, even though we're not going to preach through the end of the chapter, but I do want us to have the whole context. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul... And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not do for David, as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word, because he feared him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, Good. I'll make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you you shall not see my face unless you first bring Mikal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Bahurim. Weeping behind her, so Abner said to him, "'Go, return,' and he returned. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, "'In time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, "'By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel "'from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies.' And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David." in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace at that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them, but Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab saying, "Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he sent him away, and he's gone in peace." Then Joab came to the king and said, "What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away, and he's already gone?" Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David did not know it. Now, when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately, and there stabbed him in the stomach, so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, my kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Abishai, Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother, Asahel, at Gibeon, in the battle. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell." Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner the son of Ner. Then the king sent, said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Amen. Father, we thank you not only for the law and the didactic portions of Scripture, but also for the historical portions that give us so much context. And fill out the picture that you uh, paint for us of these various subjects. And I pray that you would enable me to clearly articulate what it is that you would have us to uh, understand and to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The movie, The uh, Conspiracy Theory... Uh, It's a kind of entertaining, uh, fun movie. It's got a lot of harebrained ideas in it that, through strange twists of plot, eventually actually turn out to be true, at least in movie land. And uh, the form that those conspiracy stories took are obviously references to uh, theories on the fringes of our conservative movement. But there are alternative conspiracy theories from the old left and the new left and from the libertarian uh, movement, I actually read a conspiracy where somebody was... Boy, I had this big concocted thing of Christians are going to take over the world. Ah, huh. great commission maybe. Um, I don't know. But anyway, it begs the question of what is a conspiracy. And the reason I bring this up is just the mention of the word conspiracy is automatically going to put a certain definition in some people's minds. You might be thinking about the movie or you might be thinking about Abraham's book, None Dare Call It Conspiracy, or maybe a libertarian book like um, Murray Rothbard's book uh, dealing with the Federal Reserve. You might have some other thing that's in there uh, in your mind. And if you just focus on those theories, I think you're going to miss a lot of applications uh, that the Lord would have us make from this passage. And it's one of the reasons I have no intention of siding, at least in my sermon, with any one of those American theories of conspiracy. You might be disappointed, Uh, but we can debate that later on after after the worship service. Instead, what I want to do is I want to look at the sinister underlying principles that can happen in politics and even within the church, or a business, or within the family. Now, as far as uh, the background theology is concerned, you can't really do much better than Psalm 2. And I'm going to go ahead and read that from the NIV. Normally, I I read from the New King James Version. If you want to follow along, you're welcome to. But Psalm 2 gives a a wonderful uh, discussion of this in terms of a multitude of conspiracies Uh, that uh, had been taking place back then and continue to today. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The Lord enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned. You rulers of the earth serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now that psalm gives many principles that uh, help us to have a biblical philosophy of conspiracies. I'm not going to cover all of them. I just want to highlight 5 of them. The the first one is that the main conspiracy that God is concerned about is the conspiracy of rulers to throw off His law. So on that definition, have there been conspiracies in America? Absolutely, yes there have. They've been successful in throwing God's law out of every aspect of American uh, life. And um, it's God, not man, who is the definer of what is conspiracy and what is liberation. You know, in Jeremiah, he, he says, don't let them say conspiracy, conspiracy concerning that. He said, that's not a conspiracy. You look in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 23, in Queen Athaliah, she accuses Joash and uh, Jehoiada of engaging in conspiracy and treason treason, treason, she shouts out. And the whole passage indicates, no, she's the one who was treasonous and engaged in a conspiracy to throw off the laws of God. So this word conspiracy can be thrown around by a lot of different people. And it's from the scripture. We're wanting to take our cues on this. Second, the conspiracies mentioned in Psalm two have been happening for thousands of years. This is nothing new. Don't get depressed when you discover there's conspiracies to take over the Republican Party or the Democratic or the whole of United States. Don't be discouraged. Third, they have never succeeded long term and never will. Gary North gives a little bit of a history of conspiracy and he shows thousands of years of failed conspiracies. Fourth, God is governing even when conspiracies are successful for a time. And then fifth, This psalm says that Jesus will ultimately win. We don't need to worry about the people who are trying to extinguish any memory of Jesus from from this nation. Uh, Fight against them, yes, but fear them, be discouraged by them, never. Uh, Gary North begins his fascinating book on Conspiracy with these words. A war is in progress. It is a war between light and darkness, truth and falsehood, ethics and power. It is also a war between two conflicting strategies. Visible proclamation, that would be us, versus secret organization. Public representation, that would be us, versus secret initiation. This war has been going on from the beginning, or at least one week after the beginning. It has been going on in human history since the serpent tempted Eve. Well, this chapter gives us two snapshots of conspiracy that was be- beginning to erupt uh, and come into full head in 1055 B.C. And the first snapshot takes place up in the north. And uh, we've already looked at some of these uh, verses last week when I contrasted the, the two women, Rizpa and, and Mikol, who were victims of power politics. But I want to quickly go through them again and show their application to conspiracy. Verse 6. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I think this obviously shows conspiracy against God and conspiracy against man. Now last week I pointed out that Abner had already known for at least 17 years that David was anointed by God to be the successor to Saul. Uh, Jonathan made that clear uh, all the way back in 1070 uh, B.C. Verse 17 of this chapter shows that the elders approved of David being king. They weren't able to manage it. And so Abner is clearly throwing off the bonds of Christ when he rejected God's revelation. Now, he may not have thought of it as explicitly in those uh, in those kind of terms, but that's really the bottom line. His conspiracy against David and then later his conspiracy to control the household of Ishbosheth, or the household of Saul, was ultimately a conspiracy against God and a rejection of the concept that God is king of kings and lord of lords. Now, why is it important for us to understand that principle? I think it's important to understand because most conspiracy books out there, whether they're Marxist or Austrian or liberal or conservative, most of them exclude God's reign from the picture. They focus only on history, and because they do that, they misinterpret history. Some of the evangelical books on conspiracy are just as deterministic and just as depressing as the Marxist ones are. Here's what Gary Norr said. Most historians have substituted some variation of cosmic impersonalism, the rule of impersonal forces, for the biblical concept of cosmic personalism, the rule of God, and he would put Marxists uh, in that category. They believe there isn't any God, but this is a this dialectical determinism. But he goes on to say, conspiracy historians, on the other hand, have usually substituted a rival version of cosmic personalism, the rule of secret societies. The thesis is the same from the IBC International Bankers Conspiracy to the IJBC, International Jewish Bankers Conspiracy, to the Illuminati. The insiders have taken control of the key resource, whether money, the media, or whatever. This places the key to history inside history. It divinizes the relative. And it does more than that, it makes Christians paralyzed, very helpless. Feeling discouraged, what in the world can we do against the proverbial them? You know, we just feel like our hands are tied. But Scripture says that all conspiracies to control America are ultimately conspiracies against God, and when you see that bigger picture that Psalm 1 presents to us, it gives us encouragement that we can fight, and our fighting is not going to be useless. Uh, We can plan for the long term. Now, of course, that does not mean that there aren't real conspiracies trying to take over, you know, right from the founding of America, you know, banking and presidency or whatever. Abner conspired against David, hoping to squash any resistance from David in the first part of verse 6 and actually a good deal uh, earlier in the book, and he conspired against Ishbosheth, trying to make him king, and we saw that last week, trying to make himself king. And this realization that there really are conspiracies that are trying to control populations, trying to control kings, keeps us from being naive. We saw um, last week uh, that this was true. This realization that there really are conspiracies keeps us from putting too much trust in man. If you have this perspective, you're not going to say, as uh, quite a number of people have been saying, you know, don't worry about the indefinite detention act. Uh, you know, these presidents are not going to abuse that. In fact, uh, President Obama has promised not to abuse that. And what I say is, even if Obama had never intended to do that, when you're offering this to him on a golden platter, it is incredibly naive. And spe- it's ignoring six thousand years of conspiracies to do exactly that. It, it's very, very naive. It's crazy. However, to give balance, we insult God's reign when we ascribe too much power to a conspiracy, whether that's the Illuminati, the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderbergers, I don't care what you, names you put to it, uh, they, they, they are not God. And I want you to take a look at point B and some of the ways that this chapter shows us that God can frustrate a conspiracy. Now, the verse I just read shows one way. Even though Abner was successful in gaining control of the household of Ishbosheth. We saw the power politics last week. He wasn't able to completely take advantage of that because his armies were stretched so thinly. Now, if David had been the only person that he had fought against, David may have lost. Uh, The odds were definitely in favor of Abner, but God ensured David was not the only enemy that he had to deal with he had the Philistines that had taken over a lot of, of uh, their territory and wanted to annihilate the Israelites, so he had to fight against them. And then you've got the, the Phoenicians uh, way up there on the, on the northwest, the Arameans to the northeast, the Ammonites to the east, the Amobites to the southeast, and then you've got the Edomites uh, to the south. And what happened, and to protecting all of the borders of Israel, it stretched the army so thinly that he was not able to win this battle of northern aggression against Judah. And uh, to make matters worse, some of his own countrymen and soldiers defected to David. Well, today, God can use external forces. He can use an overstretched military, an overstretched budget. He can use famines and all kinds of disasters for federal bailouts to make it difficult for these people to do what they really want to do in America. God can do that. A second thing that we saw last week is that co-conspirators can squabble. They can end up fighting each other. Imagine that. Abner and Ishbosheth started off on the same team trying to rob the country from David. That's a conspiracy. They were both in on it seven and a half years before. Now I want you to take a look again. At this squabble in verses 7 through 11. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. You charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner and more also if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Conspirators who have thrown off the bonds of Christ suddenly experience that ethics among thieves quickly disappears when there's no payback. Okay, by throwing out God's law, they have undercut their own success. I think that's the point. And we can pray that the modern conspiracies that involve the United Nations and United States and and the international banking system and the other, you know, conglomerates of uh, corporations, whatever it is that you fear, we can pray that God... ...would cause them to get angry with each other, become jealous of each other... ...have a falling out and in various ways undercut the foundations of their conspiracies. With a lack of ethics, if you throw out the ethics of Christ, the bonds of Christ... ...it's going to have a tendency to fall apart. Now it is interesting that though Abner does not have a genuine faith in God... ...he is finally forced by the providence of God to insist on implementing God's desires. That's exactly what verses 9 through 10 is saying... And God has done this over and over again in history. He has taken Nebuchadnezzar's, totally pagan kings, to protect a Daniel, a Shadrach, a Meshach, and a Abednego, and not just protect them, but to advance their religion. He has used Cyrus's to protect and advance the church. He has used Ahasuerus's in the book of Esther. Uh, Actually, that was Artaxerxes there in the book of Esther. Uh, Well, no, Hasuerus in the book of Esther to protect his people from annihilation. And in Ezra, it's actually Artaxerxes. Uh, The point is, God can make enemy fight enemy within the kingdom of Satan. They are not invincibly united. I think this is an absolutely fundamental principle of biblical A philosophy of conspiracy. Every conspiracy known to man has weaknesses, and God can capitalize upon those and make them blow apart. Okay, verses 12 and 13 show that when his first conspiracy looked like it was coming to an end, Abner immediately tried another one. He tried to manipulate himself into David's graces, even though he has already told Ishbosheth, you know, David's a dog's head from Judah. You know, he doesn't really care, about. he's exposed what he really believes. But look at verses 12 and 13. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, "'Whose is the land?' Saying, "'Also make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you.' And David said, "'Good, I'll make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you. You shall not see my face until you first bring me call, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face.'" Now, I'm assuming you understand a lot of what I've said last week about what's going on here, but I think you can see the obvious application to conspiracy. This was the beginnings of a conspiracy, and it looked like David was being duped, Uh, but David had his own agendas, and uh, as we saw last week, he temporarily began to play the game of power politics himself. There are at least two, if not three conspiracies going on here. Um, Joab wanted to have more control over David because he didn't like the direction that David was always going. He thought David was being too naive. So he's trying to get power behind the scenes. But David has a secret meeting. He excludes uh, Joab because he doesn't trust Joab. Uh, he couldn't control Joab. Little did David uh, realize that Abner is more than a match for David. He's going to be worse than Joab. If he can't control Joab, he's not going to be able to control Abner, and God mercifully uh, spares him from that. At least uh, Joab was a believer and was somewhat loyal. But the point is that there usually isn't one overarching conspiracy in world history like the John Birch Society you know, often paints the picture. Rather, there are many conspiracies, each of them having their own Uh, competing agendas, and God uses that situation to frustrate those conspirators. Don't buy into the idea that there's a global conspiracy that is so united that we are just hopelessly at their mercy. Okay, that's the thing I'm trying to get you to avoid. Instead, realize it's probably a lot more like the situation with Herod and Pilate who hated each other's guts. They were at each other's throats, but they became united when they had a common enemy, Jesus. So, yeah, there's a conspiracy, but, you know, the Herods and the, uh, and the pilots, they can have falling outs of their own uh, down the road. And in the same way, while the GLBT community might join hands with other liberal groups to squash Christian culture, they have their own competing agendas. And when one group goes too far, another group's going to squawk. Just like the ACLU did, you know, when the mayors uh, said, uh, we're, we're not going to let any Chick-fil-A's in our, in, in our city. All of a sudden, the ACLU said, no, oh, wait a minute. If we give that kind of power to mayors, then there could be other cities that might block our liberal, liberal groups from being able to function in that city. And so the point is, you're going to have competing agendas by these various groups that will at points come into conflict with each other. And it's going to keep them from ever being able to definitively nail the lid onto the coffin of Christianity in America. That's what they want to do nail that lid down tight, and they won't be able to do it. Another frustration to conspirators is that people often like to go behind a conspirator's back. You know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Verse 14 So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal, whom I have betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And we saw last week that verse 14 undermined everything that Abner had said in verse 12. David played their game. He went behind Abner's back, he went directly to Ishbosheth. And in the same way, we have found numerous people going behind the conspirators' backs on the internet. Uh, Whether it's a conservative blog or a WikiLeaks story or a frustrated Monica exposing her relationship to the world, God can use this tendency of people to go behind people's backs to completely frustrate the conspirator's purposes. And you'll have to look at last week's sermon to see some of the ways that Abner really was frustrated. Fifth, higher level conspirators can be frustrated by lower governments or even lower level conspirators for that matter. Verse 17. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. The whole time that Abner has been trying to get Ishbosheth to be a puppet king so that he can get into power, these elders have been trying to get rid of Ishbosheth and put David. Uh, into power. It was lower-level interposition. Now, Abner, we saw last week, was able to stave off that interposition through emergency powers that he had gotten and and all of the conflicts that were around the nation, but their opinion was a thorn in his side. Well, in the same way, while states and counties don't have much power, uh, they can certainly slow down some of the nonsense that's happening in D.C., and they can be a thorn in the flesh of conspirators I think it is as a direct result of this principle that we have seen so many congressmen signing on to that Audit the Fed bill. That's just amazing. In four years that that this has happened. So we need to keep putting on the pressure. Don't be discouraged. There are many ways in which conspirators can be frustrated. We've only covered five so far. Number six, God's revelation has a stubborn way of making life complicated for conspirators. It's a constant reminder to them that, hey, they're accountable too. There is a law that stands above them by which they will be judged. In verse 18, Abner tells the elders, "'Now then, do it, for the Lord has spoken of David, saying, "'By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel "'from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies.'" Now, Abner has been successful in ignoring God's law for a long, long time, 17 years to be specific, and at least the last seven and a half years that he's been trying to make Ishbosheth a puppet king. Now, that can be real discouraging. If you're the one who's preaching God's law constantly in the culture, and you're not having success 17 years, and God's words had no success, well, apparently it had some success. It did have an effect. It has been gnawing at Abner's consciousness this whole time. Now it comes out. It has been referenced by the elders of Israel this whole time, and it finally gets implemented with a recognition that this is indeed God's will. Never give up speaking God's word into society. It may take 17 years or much, much longer, but God promises his word will never return to him void. And if you don't like conspirators, best thing you can do, preach God's law. And don't just preach it to them. Man, preach it to everybody else, all of these uh, intermediaries that uh, are, are under them as well. They will be frustrated. Seventh, even a conspirator's closest allies can become a righteous resistance given the right circumstances. Now, the resistance had started with the elders of Israel in verses 17 through 18. They get their way. Verse 17, he tells them, hey, you guys have been seeking to have David to be king. Okay, go ahead and do it. Uh, then look at the beginning part of verse 19. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. And the implication is he said much the same thing to Benjamin. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because Saul was a Benjamite. Ishwasheth was a Benjamite. Abner was a Benjamite. Chapter 2, And verse 5, we find that at least at that chapter, almost the entire army of Abner was composed of Benjamites, okay? He seems not to have been trusting the other tribes too much uh, in his army. So if even the Benjamites are wanting David, that is huge. I want you to turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel 22. I want to read verses 6 through 9. These verses here show that the discontent in Benjamin has been going on for a long time. 1 Samuel 22, beginning at verse 6. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me, and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse, and there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, And then you you know the rest of the story, how he ends up killing all of these pastors, all of these priests in Israel. Because even the Benjamites were beginning to be sympathetic to David, Saul couldn't trust them completely. In fact, because conspirators aren't trustworthy themselves, they can't trust anybody. You know, you look at some of the big dictators of history, Stalin, all of the bedrooms he had. He didn't dare sleep in the same bedroom every night, any given night. He didn't want people to know where he was because he was paranoid, constantly fearful of assassination. He didn't trust anybody. Saul couldn't fully trust the Benjamites, his own kinsmen. We know now why he couldn't fully trust Abner. Instead, in the rest of that chapter, he gave the responsibility to kill the priest's Of Nob to who? To Doeg the Edomite, a foreigner. Well, the same has been true all down through history in many of the ancient empires. If American conspirators ever felt like they had to shoot Americans or imprison Americans, it would not at all surprise me if they used the United Nations uh, to do the enforcing. They might use our own military, but, you know, people who are close they tend to worry they tend to not like doing this kind of dirty work okay with that as a background turn back to our passage in second samuel chapter 3 no let's let's move ahead go up to first chronicles first chronicles chapter 12 and let's read verses 1 through 3 Now these were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was still a a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men, helpers in the war, armed with bows, using both the right hand and the left and hurling stones and shooting arrows with the bow. They were of Benjamin, Saul's brethren. The chief was Ahiezer, then Joash, the son of Shema, the Gibeothite. Jeziel and Pellet, the sons of Asmaveth, Berakah and Jehu, the Anothothite. So quite a few of David's mighty men were Benjamites commanding their own troops. Uh, they were even relatives of Saul. So if even those who were closest to David eventually came to realize that they didn't like working for him. They switched sides. And you know, if you read the history of conspiracies over the last thousands of years... Uh, You'll see at least some conspiracies have been frustrated because people switched sides and exposed the conspiracy It's like ah all of those years of work up for nothing And uh, god knows exactly how to make them do that However, when you're in the forest, all you can see is the trees around you. You can't see the big picture That's being painted in this chapter. And so it's very easy to get discouraged and say it just seems hopeless Year after year, these conspirators are gaining more and more power. There's nothing we can do. And just to say, I'm throwing up my hands. I'm not even going to try to influence America. And I say, resist that temptation. Don't ever give up. God has at least told you that there is a big picture in America uh, by painting some of these pictures in the Old Testament so that you will live by faith and not by sight. Okay, now we can go back to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 3. Abner's conspiracy was going along swimmingly, and it might have made some people a bit nervous. Let's read uh, 19 through 21. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So the opinions of the people has finally won. It's been a long time, but it's finally won. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Now, sometimes conspiracies are camouflaged. They don't look like conspiracies. In fact, they look like a conservative movement back backward. But we saw last week that Abner was stepping down from being king of the hill so that through momentum he could get right back up there again. It's sort of like the Marxist analogy of a hammer. Marxists say, sure, we can make concessions any time. That's just moving the hammer back. That's the concession so that in the future we can bring it down on the nail again. Uh, this is their dialectic. They don't have any problems with that. And so it is with conspiracies. What looked good to David on the surface was really a conspiracy to take over all of Israel, which is what exactly what Abner had intended all along. It's just another way of doing it. So it's a perfect picture of the Marxist dialectic. But again, I would tell you, don't despair. Even the Marxist dialectic is not omnipotent, is it? Uh, only God is. The uh, the high-level conspiracies of Abner were frustrated by the low-level conspiracies of Joab, and that's Roman numeral uh, 2. Now, let me first of all demonstrate that Joab really was indeed engaged in a conspiracy and uh, what that looked like. Uh, This was probably much more of an innocent conspiracy, sort of like uh, Bruce Willis played in the movie The Siege, Um, you know, doing it for the good of the country and uh, probably for the good of David. Uh, This book has already shown David's frustrations with the approaches of Joab and Abishai. David wanted to enter into power in God's ways and in God's timing, no matter how long that took. But Joab and Abishai, they're made of different stuff. They're very impatient. They want to seize power now. They want to manipulate. They want to maintain the power through humanistic ways. Now, they're believers. I believe Joab and Abishai were believers, unlike Abner, But they had, it seems, thoroughly bought into the principles of Machiavelli's book, The Prince. They had just totally bought into that. And we've already looked at at those principles. But because David constantly overrode Joab and frustrated Joab, Joab decides, I've got to, for the good of the country, gain some power behind David's back. And it doesn't look like he's totally self-serving. It looks like he's doing it for the good of David, for the good of the kingdom, uh, much like uh, in the movie The Siege, Devereux, played by Bruce Willis, really thought that his actions were for the good of the country. So conspiracies, they could be very, very sincerely entered into. In fact, just have that as a word picture. I think Bruce Willis in that movie is a perfect analogy of what Joab is doing uh, right here. It's still an unconstitutional conspiracy, even if it was sincere. Now, verse 22 shows the degree to which he had already gained power. It says, at that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. Now, two things to notice. The first is that Joab has been fighting without David in chapters 2 and 3. This is, this is the first time, and because of the huge conflict that happens in this chapter, David makes sure it's the last time. Uh, at least for a long, long time. He realized that was a big mistake. Uh, But it shows the degree of independence on the part of Joab. He can command his armies with or without David's permission. That's not a good thing, not at all. Secondly, the phrase, the servants of David and Joab, is very revealing. Everywhere else, the soldiers are said to be the servants of the king. Okay, the servants of the king. Even when David is not present... The soldiers are not said to be servants of the king and Joab. They're servants uh, of the king. So Joab has gained a great deal of power, and at least in some measure, he parallels Abner. We saw last week there was a literary device that the author is using of two women, Rizpah and Michal, and in this whole section, there's another literary device contrasting two generals, actually two schemers, Abner and Joab, and the phraseology there is very deliberate. Okay, the second hint that we have of this low-level conspiracy on the part of Joab is that Joab was being deliberately kept out of this meeting between David and Abner. Why? Two reasons. Because David feared Joab, and secondly, he was planning to replace Joab with Abner. He didn't want Joab in on this at all. And I'm not going to bore you with the details, uh, including the, the curse that we read in verses 28 through 30, but do at least look at verse 39. David confides in his men, and I am weak today, the anointed king. He's saying, I may be king in name, but boy, I don't have the power of a king. I am weak today, the anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Now, here's the question. Why did David not repay Joab according to his wickedness? First Kings chapter 2 says he deserved the death penalty because Joab killed Abner During a time when he was promised, uh, what's it called where you, yeah, it's a truce and he was given safe conduct, I think is the phrase I was looking for. It's a time in peace. He was given safe conduct and so it was clearly a murder. So why did David not execute Joab? Here it says he's too weak. First Kings, he just says, I can't do it. Solomon, you're the one who's going to have to uh, do this for me. Uh, Back in first Uh, Samuel 30, there was a real threat that David could have been stoned to death when things went badly. Now, we're not told who organized that, if it was Joab or somebody else. But I think there's a real fear here that things could backfire if he presses too hard against Joab. In any case, he knew that Joab had too much power, too loyal of a following for him to be able to execute him. He's a very popular general. But we're going to be seeing in two weeks. Uh, that David goes to the people in order to undermine Joab's power, and he does it very, very effectively. And he returns to leading the armies. As a result, he gains the affections of the army. But he doesn't trust Joab in this chapter. He deliberately excludes Joab from the meeting. Let me just give you some other hints. Verse 23 shows that Joab had informers that tattled on David and undermined David. They appear to be secret informers. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, there's the proverbial they. are? who is the they? It isn't the army. The army's come back. They don't know anything about it. It's people who were with David. So it says, when Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace and I probably should read it, Abner the son of Ner came to the king and he sent him away and he's gone in peace. That's probably the way they're saying it. <laughs> These secret informers may have been put in place by Joab with the security of the nation in mind. Bruce Willis, you know, of the siege. But they aren't, that's not a good sign. They stand in stark contrast to the biblical open sunshine policy. Now fourth, Joab sharply rebukes David and amazingly he gets away with it. Now, I think Joab was actually correct. Uh, Joab's not a... He's a pretty bright guy. He's actually correct that Abner was the threat to David. David has been completely duped. His desperation in trying to get rid of Joab has completely blinded David to where the the truth, that uh, threat comes from. So anyway, I just want to throw that out there. But uh, let's read verses 24 through 25. Then Joab came to the king and said... What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he's already gone? Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. I mean, he's upset, and the language is utterly uncharacteristic of a person addressing a king. Brueggemann says, Joab rebukes David, talking to him not as a king but as a fighting companion. Now, back in those days, that would have just been unheard of. Baldwin says, full of indignation, he rushed into the king's presence and criticized the policy David had adopted, accusing him of naivete and trusting the motives of an erstwhile enemy. Joab was exceeding his office and taking it upon himself to counter the decisions of the king and frustrate his intentions. To do so was virtually to assume royal power. Let me repeat the last words from the commentary there. To do so was virtually to assume royal power. And so the author is deliberately contrasting or paralleling what Joab did with David and what Abner had been doing with Ishbosheth. And it helps to explain the rather drastic language that David engages in in the rest of the chapter, which we won't get to today. Uh, if David had not spoken so strongly, his position on the throne would have been just as shaky as Ishbosheth's. And we'll look at that in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. What I want to do is just take a break for our outreach uh, next week. Now, of course, Joab's undermining of David in verse 26 has much the same effect. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner who brought him back from the well of Sirah. but David did not know it. Now, the first part of that verse shows that Joab is trying to stop a peace treaty from happening. He's directly stopping David's peace process. The last part of the verse shows that this was done secretly and without David's knowledge. And that, of course, is at the heart of all conspiracy. They can't even succeed without secrecy. And undermining authority, whether it is done in the home, in the church, or in the state, is often done behind the back of leaders. Gary North talks a great deal about the secrecy of conspiracies. And by the way, they don't have the truth. They cannot compete in the free market of ideas. So what do they do? They have to take sneaky methods to try to force or manipulate or in some way deceive people into coming to their position. Uh, They might adopt intimidation, manipulation, yelling force, other things like that, but they frequently rely on being sneaky, going behind people's backs, or uh, engaging in other forms of secrecy. And this stands in complete contrast to everything that Jesus stood for. Jesus told us we need to be a city set on a hill. We need to be a light that the whole world uh, can see. And any secrets, he says, he warns them, any secrets are going to be shouted from the housetops eventually. Gary North says this, This principle of open covenants, openly arrived at, is basic to the history of Western civilization. It is basic to all constitutionalism. The idea that the way to gain influence is by secret manipulation and hidden agendas is foreign to the Bible. What men are to do is to bring other men openly and publicly under God's four covenants, personal, church, family, and state. Not by secret initiation, but by public baptism. Not by hidden sacrifices, but by Christ's public sacrifice on the cross and by our public communion, the Lord's Supper.